Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Thanks so much for joining us again, team. My name's Amelia, and today we have a guest on the show that I'm super curious about. We have Lizette, who is the Principal Facade Consultant, and she is currently in Hong Kong. Welcome to the show, Lizette. Hi. Hi, Amelia. I'm hoping this is going to be a good interview. Um, can you start with hopefully an easy-ish question? What is your job? <laughs> I'm a facade consultant. <laughs> I, I got that from the title. I, I was sort of hoping for a little bit more from you. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I um, spend a lot of my time trying to explain this to a very broad spectrum of people, whether they have worked in my industry or not. Even, to be honest, people that work in my industry have a hard time understanding what it is that I do. So I would say at a really high level that I'm a risk consultant. Facade consulting came about around 30 to 40 years ago, which I've been told, have not independently verified this, (laughs) so someone else can do that. Uh, And it kind of came about because of um, litigation in the building sector. It used to be the purview of architects to control the facade, to control all of the kind of minute detailing and um, engineering and complexities that, um, that the facade kind of has because it's the principal envelope. It's, it's protecting everyone inside. It's protecting people outside from the people inside. It has so many constraints and kind of requirements on it like fire and thermal and uh, environmental and sunlight and glare. And it needs to be safe. It needs to fall off. It needs to do all of this stuff. It needs to be cost effective. It needs to come from overseas now. Um, So there are supply chains that need to be managed really um, carefully. Essentially what happened around 30 years ago was that all the litigation that uh, was arising after construction of all of it, about 95% of it was facade related. And the risk premium uh, that that then put upon architects became too much for them to bear. And it was segregated into an entirely new discipline. And that's really what I do. I do everything. So if someone comes up, you know, a developer and they say, hey, Lizette, uh, we want to put new cladding on this old building then I would sit down with them and their architects and say, okay, well, let's look at all the risks that we need to manage to get through this. I can help you do the engineering. I can help you source the material. I can help put you in touch with all the contractors that would be interested in this kind of scale of work. And then I help them project manage and also advise on all the technical aspects of that the whole way through. So it's quite a big job. And I'm just going to, fun fact about my situation is that we in this year are currently living in an apartment building that's recently been reclad because the original cladding was apparently flammable. I was very tempted to test the flammability, uh, but apparently that wasn't inadvisable. Very highly inadvisable. <laughs> but with a scientific mind, someone tells me that cladding is flammable. I'm going to be like, hmm, how flammable? <laughs> 
its exits before attempting anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, like I was going to wait till they took it off and then just like steal the chunk. And but anyhow, I decided that that would be a bad idea. But I'm assuming that would also is that under your kind of area as well? Those kinds of they're the issues you're trying to avoid. Yeah, precisely. I'm glad someone's trying to avoid them because it's it sucks. I could literally go on a. I don't know, three-day tangent on flammable cladding if anyone is interested. <laughs> I, I worked with developers who put it on buildings. I worked with consultants that let it slide. I, let, I worked with consultants that got forced off projects because they wouldn't let it slide. I'm helping a friend negotiate counsel in Melbourne at the moment on a pro bono basis to try and make sure that she's not being basically done over by the contractor who has gotten on board <laughs> to reclad their building for some insane amount of money yeah I I could spend days talking about it (laughs) so could I (laughs) yep (laughs) maybe we can allocate an entirely different series of interviews to that (laughs) just people complaining about living inside scaffolding for six months yep um (laughs) yeah yeah okay okay because I thought possibly with facades like facade I actually I think how about we start from probably a bit further back and are you able to give people a bit of an outline of what is a facade because I don't know that we should assume that yes yep good question so uh, when you look at a building you can see windows and uh, whatever else cladding there might be so it might be bricks or tiles or stone metal is the prevailing kind of uh, architectural response at the moment so aluminium and steel are pretty common Uh, Window frames, uh, awnings, sashes inside the window, so things that are operable, balcony doors, balustrades, tiling on balconies, although we tend to try and steer clear of that because there are weatherproofing concerns with all of that stuff. Uh, Also kind of do horizontal surfaces, like, as I say, kind of balustrade, um, balconies and roofs, but not as much because they tend to be concealed and not part of the general aesthetic that you see so I would I do all those materials so I look at the glass type the thickness the framing pipes the steel the aluminium the stone the bronze the yellow you know everything everything that's on it we're also now doing green facades that's a thing looking at solar solar panel stuff <laughs> it's, a, it's a very very broad field with a lot of new and emerging technologies and a lot of existing ones that are getting harder to find people who know how to do those well things like stone and brick yeah more traditional type type uh, cladding materials yeah right so it really sounds like a kind of job where there's an intersection between aesthetics and arts of architecture and style and mixing that in with like real hard sciences of whether or not something can combust or whether or not something's waterproof and that sort of thing exactly yeah yeah that's precisely what it is and as a result it sounds fascinating (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean it's very diverse and that's what I love about it I I think my you know my daily kind of day-to-day stuff is so different I could go you know one week doing building inspections of water that's coming in through the facade and trying to find out where that's coming from and running a bunch of like tests on site with a hose (laughs) like really kind of grubby awesome stuff 
And then I could be in an office the next day helping an architect figure out some really intricate detailing of the framing and how it goes together and whether it's built on site or in a factory and then kind of bits of pre-assembled, how much it'll cost, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's um, incredibly diverse. For sure. You've, you've kind of spoiled my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyhow. Are you able to give us a bit of a run through of what an average day, obviously there isn't one, but what an average day might kind of look like? Yeah, I can do, I'll do today. <laughs> Cause sure, that's hopefully fresh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I woke up this morning and I had a, I had a catch up on some defects for a building in Hong Kong which has both structural defects and weather proofing defects. So that means in kind of broad terms that there are things starting to fall off the building and there are also paths where water is entering the building and neither of those things are very desirable. No. (laughs) So that has meant that I've been going off to site to inspect those things. So it means looking at the facade and in intimate detail, taking the drawings and trying to dissect them and see where things may have gone wrong and then opening it up with the contractor and seeing whether it's actually been built in accordance with the drawings. So I've been doing that for a couple of months now. I had a catch up with the client this morning on that for an hour. And then I sat down for two hours and I did some AutoCAD drafting for uh, some shop drawings. The shop drawings are things that uh, people on site will construct from and they tend to go uh, through the architect and through the consultant um, a bunch of times before they're agreed from both aesthetic principles and performance principles, uh, which is kind of uh, already established in the tender documents. So I detailed those. I gave them to a contractor that I'm working for and he's currently reviewing those before they then get sent out. And then I wrote a portion of a specification for another architect so that he was after a description on how bronze is manufactured so that he could put it into a tender document. And so I did some research on that and we'll be compiling that uh, tomorrow. So that's a lot. It is a lot. (laughs) Yep. You're investigating how bronze is manufactured. Yeah. And there are so few. So we we use, um, I mean, this is a really interesting sidebar. So I, I studied engineering um, and best of them all, I did civil engineering. And uh, in really small terms, I'm dealing with fractions of millimetres. Uh, so when, I, when I'm looking at designing a detail for framing, we're looking at like, you know, 0.1 millimetres, 0.5 millimetres, 0.7, because a fraction of a millimetre makes the difference uh, in a overall building uh, letability. So when the client then wants to lease out their floor area, if your facade is taking up space in the zone, then you get penalised for that. So we have to squish everything down as little as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's just everything's very small. And when you have things like bronze, which can only be manufactured in um, a certain fashion, so you've got cast bronze and rolled bronze and extruded or pulled bronze, there's only certain manufacturers in the world that can do those types of technologies now. 
Uh, so it becomes a, a <laughs> bit of a losing game about what you can use where in what space and what constraints you're working with. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, yeah. That's so cool though. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It's really, it's fun. Like it's fun because it's constant learning, which I love. I mean, I worked under these amazing guys in, in Sydney when I was starting out and they're, their drive to learn new stuff was something that has always sat really well with me and it was continually interesting. I mean, you'd go and you'd learn about a brand new defect <laughs> and then you would be the one that then researches it and speaks to laboratories and figures out how it was made to end up with that kind of defect and then you'd have to write the report and help everyone else understand it. So it's like constant research and constant communication, which is, yeah, which is what I really love about it. And it, it sort of sounds like you're kind of sleuthing and problem solving as well. Like you, you've got this issue that's occurred and then it's up to you to like get into the nitty gritty, have enough general knowledge that you can ask the right questions and then find an answer that you can then explain to someone else who probably doesn't really want to know exactly yeah they just want to know how to fix it in the least kind of <laughs> expensive way possible but it is it's like developing a hypothesis and then testing it um a lot I mean that's really all we do even when we develop specifications we're kind of developing hypotheses around our own opinions and because there's no uh, there's not really a training um, module for facade consulting it's all on the job learning you develop uh, opinions about risk in very different ways uh, and it's kind of something I've become recently very interested in is how people respond to risk because you could meet a facade consultant that thinks that it's fine to put a certain type of glass at a certain height on a building and then sit down with someone from his team you know, someone he works with in the same company and that person will have wildly different ideas about whether that's safe or not. So it's really about how you as an individual can classify risk, how humans understand risk based on certain pieces of information that they're given, which, you know, we're pretty bad at, at doing that, <laughs> to be honest. We're pretty bad at making flying assumptions based on information so it's more about how you step your knowledge so hey I'm going to start with this small hypothesis and if this results in this then maybe it's heading in this direction super interesting and it's a it's a very different way of thinking to the way most of us would need to think yes yeah agreed the other thing you said that I'm finding kind of interesting like in general I think of civil engineering as being big things that you don't want to move and are probably made of concrete. <laughs> and, um, and that's a, that's obviously a horrible generalisation based on someone who never studied engineering. But, it, like, you're doing something that's, com well, you still don't want things to move, but these things are so small. Like, that's such a different way of looking at the world. It is, but you I would say that uh, some of the best facade consultants I've met have uh, the biggest understanding. 
So it's not just about how small a component is and whether it can move in the right direction you want it to, whether it's fixed or, or moving, that kind of thing. It's also, I would say, more about uh, the overarching responsibility. So whether, um, whether the entire facade can be built offshore, whether the entire facade can be built onshore, how it gets there, the program around that, and pulling everyone with you along that journey. So having the conversations at the right time. So staging, which is obviously very critical in all forms of engineering. But civil engineering in particular, the ones that I've met, and I I mean this sounds, I don't know, kind of, uh, what's the word? Self-congratulatory or something. But I'm very glad I picked it because it gives me this, um, re- like a really big world understanding of what is a very niche profession. And uh, I, I've i always carried with me this idea that no matter what it is that I'm doing, no matter how small the scale is that I'm working on, I can, under- I can appreciate the top end of that and how that fits into it and the transportability of the skills, which I think is um, super interesting, super important, sorry, in, in this day and age where most people, and my dad's a civil engineer, change professions even within their own profession they can have a very diverse career um so it's yeah it's a balance I guess speaking of skills what are some of the skills that you would highlight and say these are really key for me being able to do my job well yes so (laughs) I would say having an ability to uh, visually communicate your your idea so whether you can sketch or draw uh, something, it doesn't have to be a hand sketch. It can be a 3D model, uh, something like this. I would say written communication is probably the most important facet of my, of my work because I have to describe what it is that I've found. <laughs> and often you get the chance to catch someone for a discussion, although it's always better but even then when you talk to someone it's difficult for them to understand when you write it I find that their understanding becomes clearer Uh, so written communication visual communication engineering yes and no I mean I have a lot of friends that are great facade consultants and their background is in architecture or in industrial design Uh, So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a structural engineer or have a propensity for it. Uh, Some of the better ones I know understand the structural engineering aspects and can whip out a quick, you know, wind calculation or or understand kind of physical behaviour of material. So when the wind blows, it's going to move in this direction. There might be vibrations, that kind of stuff. But structural engineering is probably only... I would say only about 15% of what I do on a day-to-day basis unless I'm working for a facade contractor uh, and then it would be like 90% because they do all the design and we just do the engineering for them. So it kind of depends who your client is, but visual communication, structural um, and written communication and, and understanding of research. Yeah, and the research process. Yes, yeah, being able to basically critically evaluate uh, what it is that you're reading and draw all the right conclusions from it. 
Yeah, and try and avoid those like crazy risk uh, mistakes that might occur. Mm. Yeah, or just reason it out. I mean, risk is um, risk is always there, but how you manage it is very important, and how you communicate that, um, and how you take or deflect ownership to the right person is really important. Ownership, that's an interesting one, though. Mm. Mm, it is. Yep, of course. <laughs> All insurers say so, too. <laughs> <laughs> that how have you ended up in this job and also in Hong Kong doing it like what was your path say from high school to where you are now yep so I in high school I did um, the Victorian Certificate of Education the VCE and my subjects were very broad I did English literature studio art in fine arts math methods chemistry, French, and music, solo performance music. On my um, university selection form, I had, uh, I had, I think, three different types of engineering. I had aerospace, uh, civil engineering, and structural engineering. And I also had (laughs) architecture (laughs) and uh, fine arts and uh, and then a mix of the two so I had science and arts and engineering and arts um, I think about eight eight all up or whatever we had to pick can't really remember I um I ended up with engineering uh, as my first pick but at the same time I was doing uh, interviews for the RMIT architecture um, course and had gone off and sat the examination, which was like three hours out at uh, Royal Flemington Showgrounds. And I was lucky enough to be selected in the second round um, for that course. So after I'd done the interviews, I sat, I stuck with that course for maybe four months. Uh, and then I bowed out uh, because I was not very happy with <laughs> with me as a person in that course I basically would not sleep for three days while I was doing portfolio and it just became all too much uh, straight up oh that's not, not good yeah not good um and it was also I was also surrounded by really enthusiastic uh people some of whom are still my best friends which is crazy you know I spent four months in this course <laughs> Um, but I was surrounded by people that had always wanted to do architecture, always. They'd always known that they wanted to do it. They had lists of their favourite architects and I didn't really felt feel like I belonged uh, in it, which in hindsight, you know, if someone said to me you could go wind the clock back and do architecture, I would have, I would do it 100%. But what I did, so I left about four months in, my parents were living in Sydney. My dad had taken a job up there. So I took a couple of months off and then I applied for Sydney Uni and UTS. Uh, and I got into the civil engineering and arts uh, combined major at uh, University of Technology Sydney. And I started that in June of that year, July of that year, and loved it. So I. I unhappily had not done physics at high school. I really wish I had. If I could have switched it out for chemistry, um, I would have done physics. I ha- I went to a really progressive high school, but 
my chemistry teacher uh, said to me after I had selected, sorry, my physics teacher said to me after I'd selected um, chemistry that women weren't supposed to do physics. And I, my mum and I were so annoyed because I'd already put my selection in. And if if he'd said that to me before, I would have done physics just to spite him. <laughs> Which is yeah. <laughs> person that I am. <laughs> and I would have been better at it, to be honest. I'm I'm more my understanding of the real world and how the physical relationships, uh, the interplay of them is much sits better with me than something like chemistry which I can't see or I, I don't feel I can see I need to be able to kind of physically grasp something and throw it and hold it to be able to understand what it is that I'm seeing so I've really struggled with chemistry in that aspect of it which is crazy because I deal with materials on a daily basis <laughs> so anyway so I ended up doing civil engineering and learning physics for the first time and um, combining it with my arts degree, which was a social sciences degree, really, and it was based in uh, a language, French. Uh, luckily, I got to go to France for a year as part of that course. And while I was there, we weren't supposed to study our professional degree, so our you know engineering or business or whatever it was that it was attached to the social sciences part. So I spent a year in Strasbourg in France. Um, at a business school, <laughs> which was very bizarre as a 21-year-old, um, but fantastic, obviously. <laughs> and I came back and um, I had written a couple of papers. So we had to write papers for our home university about um, what it was like living in France, about the social um, kind of parameters and limitations and from that experience, I really developed my, um, I'd say rather redeveloped because I've always loved creative writing, uh, my interest in writing and communicating and, and research. So we'd have, we did literature studies and, um, and really uh, the, the kind of methodological stuff. So, you know, go out and interview five people on the street and record their experiences and distill it into an interview and um, and then draw a conclusion and, and develop interview questions. It's just really interesting kind of social science stuff. Came back and fell, like really fell into engineering side because I'd missed the activation of that particular side of my brain, that very hard uh, science stuff and did really well in my final years um, of engineering, but didn't really know what it was I wanted to do. I'd uh, done a couple of placements in geotechnical engineering and civil estimating, <laughs> which are <laughs> like I are really different, but you know, you're talking about immovable stuff. I was looking at dirt <laughs> and classifying it, which which again, I think is fascinating. <laughs> I could speak for hours on that topic. But as part of my geotechnical experience, I did a lot of drafting. Um, my first job was in civil estimating and one of the guys in the department who I admired and still admire and still speak to said to me, was that if there's one skill I could tell you, you should learn, it, it's AutoCAD 
I think it has seen me through my entire career and it means that I can sit down and draw something and visually communicate it. So when I did the geotechnical placement, which was one year, I I uh, asked if I could sit with their drafting team and learn it and, and eventually obviously help them um, map out flights and all of that stuff, which was, uh, I'd say, to my advantage. Which <laughs> <It> was great. <laughs> Very glad you told me to learn that. <laughs> Uh, and then, and then what? And then I'd say at the end of 2008, a woman came to our university. So it was about a year before I was due to graduate. And I, I went to a lecture and there was this woman from a professional services company from a consulting firm who was a facade consultant. And she got up and she said, let me tell you what I do. <laughs> And it was very similar to the conversation that we're having now. But the thing that really struck me was she said, I scale buildings in my, like for work. I'm, you know, I'm in the office maybe 75% of the time, but 25% of the time I'm out looking at defects. And I then transport the knowledge that I learned through um, things that go wrong later on back to my consulting and it's this kind of continual life life learning cycle. And I was like, holy shit, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I want to do that. That sounds incredible. And then she's like, you know, and we have to speak to architects and designers. And I was like, yes, yeah, sold. This means that I can basically work. I can pretend to be an architect, <laughs> even though I'm not. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was it. <laughs> So I then, uh, I then, after I graduated, uh, cold called a bunch of, or sorry, before I graduated, I graduated halfway through the year, so I wasn't part of the standard graduation cycle, which was tough. Uh, but I ended up just cold calling a bunch of people. Was lucky enough that I, I mean, I would say the world of engineering is really small, and I managed to find an old kind of mentor from my civil estimating department five years earlier who had now become one of the regional directors of, of ACOM. And I didn't have any other contact, but I emailed him and I was like, hey, can you point me in the direction of your HR department because I want to be a facade consultant for your firm and I know that you've got a facade consulting division. And then I got the job. <laughs> Where small team who were great who were kind of like family uh I still speak to a lot of them on a daily basis even though I haven't been there for five years and as they say the rest is history and then I kind of worked there for five and a bit years and then my husband and I um, looked around and we said hey we're not getting any younger and Sydney's really fast-paced and um how about we just go and work overseas for a little while We've both got pretty transportable jobs. So I reached out to a couple of companies and then they put me in touch. So they were based in London and Europe um, largely. And they said, hey, we don't have anything at the moment, but we can put you in touch with some facade consultants in Hong Kong who are looking for people. Uh, interviewed with two of them and that was successful with both of them was offered jobs for both and selected to work for a 
um, an excellent facade uh, company called Front. Uh, and then worked there for for about four years, just under. And I was really interested in growing the firm and um, and kind of establishing more of a presence and thought that there was a really unique opportunity in Hong Kong to be more of a design consultant. Um, there tends to be a much heavier lean in Hong Kong towards structural engineering side of consulting. So a lot of the people I meet here who are consultants are structural engineers and their ability to, I'm not sure, I've never been sure whether it's a, uh, a product of kind of the environment after um, after they graduate or kind of their learning experiences, but they kind of have one directional um, thing, one directional facet, which is structural engineering, and then kind of ignore all the other parameters. And I was like, hey, we can do all of this other stuff. Like, I know how to do all of this. And how about we set up a team and really go for it? And they were like, look, we, we understand, but we just don't really think that Hong Kong's our market. And I said, okay, well, no worries. I'll I'll go and then I'll start my own company and I'll do that then. (laughs) That was was about a year and a bit ago. Yeah, August last year. So I've been doing that for 14 months. Yeah. Nice. Congratulations. That's that's really big. Yeah, it is. (laughs) I guess. I don't know. It doesn't feel big. It feels like, I don't know. Just, I, yeah, I'd say some of the stuff um, I've been pretty lucky with, but at the same time, I've gone looking for it and I'm not sure if people do that. <laughs> like, hey, if I have this conversation with this person and it doesn't turn out, then, you know, no harm done, then I'll just go and look in this direction. <laughs> I, I think there is a lot of fear about doing that. Mm. Yeah. Yes. That was the most fascinating adventure. That was so rambling. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. No, it was wonderful. Like, and I know it's way back in the story, but I kind of just want to slap that teacher who told you that physics isn't for chicks. Like, that's ridiculous. I just find it really, I just found it really interesting because I'd, my parents, um, my mum's a uh, kind of always been very, uh, you know, artistic and communications driven, and my dad's a civil engineer, um, but has always impressed upon me the need for communication, and is really widely read, and you know, as a family, I'd never been told that I couldn't do anything ever, ever. Like, <laughs> you know, I was enrolled in. French classes, extracurricular kind of arts classes. I was doing botanical drawing at the age of 10 at, you know, um, the Botanic Institute out of the Royal Botanic Gardens. (laughs) And at the same time I was on science camps um, in primary school and I, yeah, and then I kind of hit that and it was like, what? (laughs) What do you mean? What do you mean I can't do that? It's like, well, I'm going to do it and prove it to you. And then my mom was like, no, we've already put the preferences in. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> damn it. Can I, can I like, can I just do it anyway? And they're like, no, you'll be overloaded. <laughs> yeah. Love proving a point. 
Uh, it, it can be a really strong driver. Ooh. Like it's not always the best one, but it, it can be really I'd good. It's probably one of my main drivers. <laughs> when someone says you can't do that, I'm like, hang on a second. <laughs> Is that your opinion? <laughs> yeah, where's the evidence? Yeah. Oh, wait, I'm, I'm evidence to the contrary. <laughs> Within that whole... Uh, story is were there sort of like really key events other than the contrariness being brought out in you but Mm. were there any other events like the science camps or something like that which really sort of inspired you to keep going not particularly I I would say that I've just um I don't I was thinking about this the other day I actually actually know that's a lie so I had this kind of epiphany about a year ago (laughs) When someone said to me, what is it that makes you tick? And I've always been told that I'm hyper competitive and I would trace that aspect of my, um, of my personality back to primary school when my dad and I used to, so right down the end of our street was this fantastic primary school that... (laughs) I mean, it was the hippiest kind of hippie-go-lucky thing you could ever send your child to. We used to sit around in circles and sing Kumbaya and Michael Jackson's Heal the World and I was in the choir and, you know, it was just ridiculous. But they also ran um, they also ran these uh, competitions at night time after school where everyone would show up with a parent and you would do these abstract competitive um, mathematics exercises. So you'd be in a team with your mum or dad and you'd go around from station to station and you'd solve the, the puzzle as quickly as you could. And watching my dad win at those, <laughs> I would say probably, <laughs> not probably, definitely imbued in me this sense of competition and I've always um it's it's been a blessing and a curse because I hit my kind of graduate job and there was another woman in my team we were exactly the same age we're the same height um because we're only two women in our field on that floor in that team our names would constantly get mixed up it's just ridiculous And she said to me about six months into it, Lizette, I think we're the same person. Um, Please, can you stop competing with me, though, because I need an ally? And I was like, shit, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Like, this is the first time someone said that to me, and I'm really sorry that I'm doing it. This is basically how I work. I find someone who I compete against, (laughs) and then I use that as my drive, which is horrendous and you know it is what it is so I I had to kind of um, reassess that I still do it um, but I at least am a bit more cognizant of the type of person I'm doing it with and I sit them down at the beginning and I'm like I'm really sorry but it's because I respect you that I want to compete <laughs> they're like okay <laughs> oh so that had a very strange ending, but I would say that that was that's basically my force is that I'm competitive. <laughs> well, and yeah, it's a, it's definitely a blessing and a curse, and it can make you enemies 
obviously if it's done the wrong way and massive props to that other woman for saying actually can we can we stop oh absolutely yeah agreed but that can also be your superpower because if you use it and if you find someone else who can be fueled the same way like you can both then compete with each other and it never stops and that's amazing too yep yeah agreed and I've I would have to say I've found um women in my kind of later life so having been in Hong Kong now for five years the type of women I meet here are very very similar very competitive very top of their field and it's opened my eyes to this kind of phenomenal platform I guess where you can better each other so you say hey look at look in this direction what about this and that person's like oh my god I've just done some research on that this is what arises and you're like oh my god that's amazing I didn't even realize that was possible I just stopped at that level so you're you're right it does kind of it can be this this kind of superpower and that's that's kind of what I'm trying to do at the moment (laughs) use it for good not for evil (laughs) yeah use it to build up others rather than destroy yep exactly which is hilarious because I am also obsessed with Batman (laughs) something really wrong with you <laughs> and if I had to distill it into this it would be basically that if you ever won an award the first person you thank would be Batman <laughs> like, and then everyone else might yeah it's true not gonna deny it <laughs> amazing I did not see that coming yeah <laughs> weirdly weirdly tangential <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna skip to the next question which is if there's a young person who's listening to this and is considering your kind of career, have you got any advice for them? Or maybe for Lizette at high school, have you got any advice for her? Oh, that's a really great question. I I would say even if you have uh, a fantastic <laughs> propensity towards, say, physics or arts or anything, to always keep it broad. And I don't think I would. I mean, this, again, sounds a little bit odd but all of the things that all of the mistakes that I made or all of the kind of directions that I pointed in and have resulted in me ending up like this (laughs) and I'm not so sure if I went back whether I'd say anything to change that because if I'd done architecture I would have ended up in a very different field I possibly would have ended up in fine arts rather or creative writing rather than engineering um, I do remember my dad saying to me, hey, Lizette, I'm, this was at the end of my engineering degree, so right before I graduated, he said, my biggest regret <laughs> is not helping you stay in architecture. And I was like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> great advice. I mean, this would have been great, like, <laughs> you know, six years ago, but sure. <laughs> I just spent all that money, but whatever. Let's move on. Um, I would just say... A, basically keep a, an open mind and keep learning because I that's really the most important thing in my profession is that if you're able to continue to want to learn and continue to better your understanding and accept accept fault I mean you know something not, not everything we do is right there might be times when you're in a meeting and someone says hey I know you did this on a project and you have to be able to say look these were the circumstances under which um, that happened and in very different circumstances or in the same circumstances, I may not have made the same decision. 
So kind of being able to develop critical and analytical skills uh, no matter what you do. So if you've got hard sciences as your pick or if you're all the way on the right, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, talking about on the right, on the other side, which is creative arts and <laughs> social sciences and stuff like that, even if you love it, I would push push for a different worldview. So either reading stuff like a science journal or something that's completely outside of your your immediate kind of realm of understanding uh, is is something that you know, I think would make a really well-rounded person, not just someone in my profession, but but certainly help. I think that's great advice for anyone. Like it's really easy to get blinkered and you kind of get encouraged to move in one silo and you're like, oh, you're just a science person, that's it. Whereas, yeah, it makes you a, a more interesting human being, but it, it will also make you better at your job or or your field if you're more broadly sort of educated or knowledgeable because you don't know like although I kind of like dislike the word word synergy because it's a bit overused but that there's benefit that comes from mixing fields and you don't know what you're going to be inspired by Mm. agreed completely agreed I mean I you know you often get asked what would you be doing if it wasn't this and I I have to say I've really struggled with this throughout my entire life because we all have down days. We all have times when um, we don't like the industry that that we're working in. I've started (laughs) finance degrees outside of my profession. I've started arts degrees. I've started creative writing degrees. (laughs) If someone actually said, hey, Lizette, what would you do? Um, I'd really struggle. I wouldn't know whether to go to an arts college whether to do a portfolio and go back to architecture, I wouldn't know whether to do a master's of um, a master's of finance and move into finance. I, I mean, I world is kind of limitless, really. Uh, yeah, so I kind of enjoy what I do most of the time, but increasingly finding uh, pretty t- uh, sorry pretty tough because the building industry is. Um, I'd say one of the worst offenders on a climate change uh, perspective, which I, I really struggle with ethically. One of the big reasons I moved from Australia was because of the building industry there and how it's so cutthroat and, I mean, really corrupt, really. Uh, and I, and then I came to Hong Kong thinking, hey, Hong Kong will be way better. <laughs> Oh no, I just saw, you know, bags of money or I've just heard about, you know, I recently heard that uh, there's indentured slave labour on site, which I really struggle with (laughs) because that was one of my big reasons for not going to the Middle East is because I I know that the guys on site are coming from uh, camps. They've had their passports taken away from them and if you go there and you earn the money that's associated with that industry, you're basically implicit in modern slavery. <laughs> so I, I really struggle with the ethics um, of all of it, to be honest, and that's, yeah, that's an ongoing kind of facet of what I'd like to change. I think, I think that's a really, like, it's incredibly challenging thing to face in whatever industry. And I think there's, there's a lot of, there's those ethical issues pretty much no matter what industry you're in, to be honest. And 
Am, am I allowed to ask you a question to try and get like a happy answer out of you? Yes. I was get. I, I was wondering what what are you most excited really for? <laughs> Sorry. Do I sound really jaded? I specifically <laughs> told myself I wasn't going to sound jaded. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, I just want like I yeah. I, I want to challenge you for some positivity so what are you excited for for the future particularly for sats because honestly i i think about like there's there's a a lot of negative things especially when you've been in a building and you've seen what honestly looked like styrofoam get ripped off and you're like that's just going to landfill but what about the green stuff that's happening and the um I've heard about people talk about like solar windows and stuff like what what's some mm. cool stuff that's happening uh yeah I'm so I would say that the stuff that really excites me is the renewable materials industry so yes there are kind of new materials there's things like solar panels being integrated into windows uh and buildings that have kind of bioregeneration abilities and things like this but the thing that really interests me is being able to upcycle so you mentioned landfill (laughs) basically being able to take a material off a building and reuse it because the way that the manufacturing industry is currently geared a part of it needs to move on and develop and um, all of the stuff tied into that supply chain and the materials around that is going to be really exciting in the next 20 to 30 years. And that's something that I'm looking at with a couple of mates at the moment who incidentally are all women <laughs> from various backgrounds. But but basically how you take how you take materials that have been built or are included in construction already and use them. So reliability from a structural perspective, from fire, from acoustics, from all of it. Um, whether you can just take it and reuse it, whether you upcycle it, whether you recycle it to some degree. Uh, And then, of course, all of the energy that goes into that, having that as renewable energy, so solar farming and uh, wind-driven energy and hydrothermal and that kind of stuff. But I, sorry, geothermal, I, and that's the stuff that I live for. Like, I think that that entire supply chain will be just disrupted in the next um do you know if you'd asked me a year ago I would have said next 20 to 30 years but I would say that the incidence of the the pandemic has sped it up we're now kind of looking down the barrel at doing everything a lot sooner it's just about getting the right tools and um, shifting kind of uh, understanding uh, in place so I think that that for me is super super exciting I Honestly, I'm feeling a bit naive at the moment because until I lived in a building that was being reclad, I'd never thought, like in my head, buildings just lasted forever. And <laughs> I know, how, how naive, right? And like I, I've thought about upcycling on a small kind of home scale, looking at like ironing plastics or whatever to make bags, all that sort of stuff. But yeah. The idea that you could do it at a building scale and not just that sort of like super hippie style, but like 
a scientifically mm. based option is that's cool. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It is so cool. Like I actually in my head already have this like like you could basically pull down a city and rebuild it and it could like it's like Lego. Like isn't that fascinating? Having something or um having something that gives you the ability to just pull something apart and put it back together in an entirely different way. Like that is like that I find that super, super exciting from a both an aesthetic and design perspective all the way through to science and the supply chain side. But it also seems super obvious. And it's like, why? Why is this not happening? Like, why? It's 2020, people. Like, why are we only, like, it's not even happening yet? Yeah. I, it's really interesting. I have, all, like, you know, I work in a profession that is really, I'd say, quite traditional. There's, um, there's all of these kind of technologies that have been around. You get on site and you say, hey, why are you doing that? I'm like, well, this is the way I've always done it. Like, well, that doesn't mean it's right. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got this um, underlying, um, I would say, desire to not change because everything's just fine the way it is, according to the majority of the people that I work with in the industry. Uh, The thing that um, really needs to change is the, the digital platforms. So even in Hong Kong, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff that we do is in two D, which is insane, because the the amount of technology that we have available in three D, where we can put materials inside a drawing and develop a specification immediately from that software, um, we can send that single model over to the factory and they can manufacture everything off it. Like we're talking nuts and bolts and find quantities of things and do all of this stuff in Hong Kong that's all done by hand and uh that's been a a really eye-opening for me because I I'd say Australia is really really advanced in that in kind of the ability to have everything working inside uh models and using technology to to really drive uh information and store it and then having, the, I'd say, the complete reverse in Hong Kong where they're like, <laughs> let me draw you a section of this building by hand. <laughs> like, that's unnecessary because we have a 3D model. <laughs> they're like, oh, no, 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 but can we trust it? I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, I mean, what, what you're asking me is can we trust the person that built it? I don't know that. I mean, that's your purview, not mine. <laughs> but, but it's just a really um, interesting flip. And of all of the, the cities that, should be at the forefront of this it should be hong kong it really should be. i mean they they have a design life uh, of the buildings here which is much lower much much lower than most other cities in the world so you're saying buildings that last forever in australia the design life tends to be 50 years in hong kong it's 25 like i've i've been in this city for five years and i walk past a block and it's there's a building that's just gone <laughs> I mean, kind of you know we're talking like 40 story buildings that get you know torn down within two weeks so this kind of this regeneration that happens continuously in hong kong hong kong would be the perfect kind of place to to have these values but it's got so many things working against it um and 
really the digital stuff is is something that would would drive that very very quickly it's a cultural thing but you know what do you do (laughs) you gradually wear them down yeah I mean I don't I don't see why you know, I go to a building in Hong Kong that was built 10 years ago. And to be honest, this, this is kind of true in Australia where because of the way that the stakeholders um, take over a building during occupation after it's been built, uh, they often don't have access to the original drawings from that building, which is insane <laughs> because they exist. You know, we're talking about reams and reams of paper that was made that that was produced for the purposes of building this building and yet I walk into it 10 years later and no one can find a drawing of the window that I'm looking at like that that kind of over the wall stuff um is just phenomenal it's it's, it's like and it's just so accepting like oh no let's let's just assume it doesn't exist like but if we just ask someone like it's gonna shave off a lot of your time and mine um, but I, I think that is really, that's really product of stakeholders. And I think that's what this whole thing keeps coming back to in the building industry. Um, things get legislated, uh, by government. And, uh, so in Australia, for example, there's the building code of Australia or the national construction code, and that's developed with stakeholders from both consulting side and also from the manufacturing contracting side. So glass fabricators and um, aluminium fabricators and people like that. And it, it builds into it a set of standards and performance requirements um, that you have to fulfill in Australia. But there are ways around, like not ways around it, but there are ways of achieving the performance without um negating the clauses inside uh inside the specifications and regulations Uh, and things like you don't have to have a full set of drawings (laughs) is you know it's not mentioned specifically inside the national construction codes because what contractor wants to have to produce that and then hand it over there's a risk element that's involved in that a very high one um, from a litigation standpoint because if you hand a drawing over and then someone opens it up and says, hang on, this wasn't built, you then go through court <laughs> to show. So there's, there's a lot of um, this stakeholder stuff that uh, that's really being driven by construction law and the legal emphasis on whose responsibility and ownership, which, you know, said very early on, who owns what, who is responsible for what, who said what, um, when did they say it? Is there a means of uh, tracking that communication? Can we sue someone and get our money back for this? And that is something that uh, is really um, at the basis. I mean, that is that's the basis of my industry. It's how do we how do we avert the risk of that happening? <laughs> I know. Let's just not give them the drawings. Let's make their life a whole lot harder. <laughs> Because if they don't have the drawings, no one can point the finger at who did what when or who didn't. It it all makes sense in like some ways, but yeah, not yeah, yeah, not as that's complicated. It is. It's very complicated. Is is there something that you wish the general public understood about your job or about? facades 
I do you know what I wish that the general public knew uh, more about their legal um, their right to legal representation after buying a house or after buying an apartment and what they are and aren't responsible for from a cost standpoint. Because the one thing that I see in Australia, and this is certainly true of the, the flammable cladding thing, is that all the cost is being passed on to people that own those dwellings and from my perspective it really shouldn't be. <laughs> I, uh, I, I mean, it's similar to, in my mind at least, this is not necessarily written into the codes or anything, but in my mind it's similar to uh, going to David Jones and buying a suit and returning it 20 years later with all the tags still on it because you never wore it <laughs> or the event that you bought it for never eventuated. Uh, and all of that stuff is really um, well kind of enshrined um, in law and uh, in consumer protections and all of this stuff. But But the biggest stuff like having an apartment uh, in this day and age when the design life of your building has been reduced and the documentation requirements have become heftier, which means builders want to try and kind of pass the buck a lot more and it becomes really difficult to find out who was responsible for what. I think that's way more, um, more important than understanding really what it is that I do. It's understanding what your... Uh, what you as a consumer and um, as an owner of of something that should have a kind of performance in your mind. <laughs> I mean, you buy a house and you expect it to last forever. You buy an apartment and you expect it to last forever. But, uh, yeah, that that kind of like what you can have and what you have paid for is not really commensurate with um, with what you're entitled to receive after you've bought it. And I wish that that was uh, more understood. Basically, in, <laughs> I was thinking about this with a friend the other day. There are legal aid centres all over Australia, but there are no, there are no like engineering aid centres. <laughs> or, you know, you can't walk into to a shop and say, "Hey, I've just received a letter from a builder saying that." my entire building needs to be, or I've received a letter from council saying that my entire building needs to be reclad. My strata has gone off to get four quotes and they're all millions of dollars. And I don't understand A, what cladding is. I don't understand B, why it's flammable and why, I, why I'm forced to pay the cost of this. And C, <laughs> what my rights are and whether I can push back on any of this and whether this is, you know, all above board or not. <laughs> I love the idea of engineering aid centres. Like, I, I can just imagine it and smell it. It's like a ray of guys, like, you know, people um, all sitting at a desk with their glasses on, like, hi, can I help you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. So, no, I think that's a really good thing. Like, I think, A, we can just start with people understanding what an earth cladding is um, and work up from there. Yeah. That's that's a really good one. Is there 
anything else that we haven't touched on yet that you'd like to share? Not really. <laughs> uh, what would I say? I'd say, I, I mean, I can't really speak to your experience without knowing more about it, but uh, I would say that if you are someone who has had a letter from counsel and you don't know what to do with it, um, there are people you can contact about it. Uh, so that's kind of a practical piece of information. But, and, and for that, I mean, I'm more than happy for people to email me and I can put them in touch with people in Australia that I know that would be happy to help. Uh, and the second part about it is um, I think the thing that's been most interesting in my pretty short career, I mean, I've only been practising for a decade, is that critical thinking skills are the most important things that you can develop, <laughs> like analytical um, analytical and critical thinking and either kind of developing those on your own or preferably in school um, with people are, I would say, put you in good stead for anything that you encounter, especially if you want a career as illustrious as mine. <laughs> Or, you know, not illustrious. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I think critical thinking skills, like, they won't just benefit you in a career. They'll also benefit you in life. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And just to wrap up, last question. Do you have a shout out for someone or a high five for someone who you think is doing an awesome job and you just think everyone who's listening to this podcast should give them a virtual high five? Oh, do I? I mean, I've got heaps of friends who are architects who are amazing, <laughs> but I don't feel like I should reel off all the companies <laughs> that I know I mean, no, not really. I work with so many excellent people. Um, I think it would be a struggle to sit here and describe them all for the next hour. How much longer have you got? Um, hmm. Is there anyone who's working, like you mentioned that there is a lot of uh the ethical challenges like is there anyone who's working in that space to change things that you'd like to sort of give some kudos to yeah sure so I I work with this um or I'm starting to work with this amazing woman called uh Sarah Stupak who uh had a very very different trajectory to mine and um worked in uh Shanghai for nine years and then ended up in Hong Kong she's originally from America uh, and she's been a breath of fresh air because she brings an entirely new perspective, I'd say, like a much higher level perspective uh, than mine. Um, who else? Worked with this incredible woman called um, Samantha Koras, who is an aerospace uh, engineer, has background, but then went and did a couple of programs for um, for. I can never say their name right. I always get in trouble for this. <laughs> NASA, NASA, because <laughs> you got to say it with an accent. NASA, <laughs> uh, and then ended up in the solar field, uh, and she's incredible, like very intelligent, top of her game. Um, one of my mates, um, Jacqueline Alexander, Jackie Alexander, who's working as a senior lecturer at Monash University in the architecture department. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, I meet a lot of women who are not just in my industry, but uh, kind of broad spectrum 
women in finance and um, kind of business area as well who who have similar ethical challenges, kind of how to bring about diversity in the industry, which I I also think is super um, problematic. I mean, we're talking we're we're talking about my life as a you know as a Caucasian woman in the industry. I've got a number of female friends who come from um, completely different countries and cultural different backgrounds and have either struggled far more than I have in the industry or have completely bowed out and left, which I think is an incredible shame just due to the overwhelming um, problems that they face. Yeah. Anyway, tangential again. Did you never answer a straight question? (laughs) That's overrated. Totally overrated. I am going to stop you there, though, because at some point we sadly have to stop and... I want to thank you very much, Lizette, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much. And please keep doing an amazing job at what you're doing. Mm. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, I look forward to hearing this back. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions. He gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats. And he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic.